0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening, and welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Uh, it's great to have you all here with us this evening. Um, a, a quick notice, uh, our our rounds for next month has changed. Uh, we're actually going to have a book party the first Wednesday of next month. Uh, the Narrative Medicine textbook written by our faculty is coming out. Uh, coming out tomorrow. So... Um, so we're gonna have the book launch, and not, even, not only a launch, it's gonna be a party. I think there's gonna be champagne, hors d'oeuvres, we'll have a great time, we'll have a chance to get an autographed book. So uh, really looking forward to having you here with us next month. Um, I wanna uh, introduce uh, Cindy Smollets, who's going to welcome and introduce our guest tonight. Uh, Cindy Smollitz is a graduate of the Narrative Medicine Master's Program. She is a technology expert um, who really Drives the technology and engine behind our program in narrative medicine. She's the program director in the program in narrative medicine, skilled in the field and facilitation in the theory of narrative medicine, and also absolutely instrumental in making the program run. Cindy. Thank you. Thank you.
1: First, we're going to watch a short video, and then I will officially introduce the speakers.
2: It is the diagnosis that changed one person's life and the course of medical history. The first diagnosed case of autism, a life forever changed, and one mother whose journey helped millions of other families and children who followed. Here's Nightline co-anchor Juju Chang. You never know it, but this man helped make history in the annals of medicine. He's known as Case Number One. His name is Donald Triplett. In 1943, he was the first person ever diagnosed with autism, the brain disorder that affects verbal and social interaction. And in many ways, his journey from despair to hope mirrors the history of autism itself. (laughs) Finding Donald was the culmination of 15 years of reporting for Nightline correspondent John Donovan and producer Karen Zucker.
3: This little boy is named Jake.
2: Among the first journalists to cover autism on network television, they began in 2001 with Jake, this little boy undergoing what was then a relatively uncommon therapy called applied the behavior analysis, or ABA.
3: And what do you call this little bit of progress? A miracle? Because this is autism.
2: Jake! They found what some parents referred to as hope in unlikely spots. Like on this beach in San Diego, where children with autism were finding some solace in learning
3: how to surf. And it's about the point where they're starting to paddle the first unwilling child into the swelling sea that you want to ask, is this really a good thing to be doing to these kids? Whose idea was this anyway?
2: They explored the private thoughts of a young man with autism looking for love.
3: You like her? I said I love her how oh, you love her. But there's a problem. Well, she don't love me back. No, she doesn't love me back. Love, unrequited. That's what's been weighing on Paul. I just was rooting for him so hard to get what he wants, which is a girlfriend the love and companionship. And also seeing just how hard it was for him to get that. They understand. They are. And our book is based here.
2: Armed with their scripts, the duo have turned their first drafts of autism history into a comprehensive book, In a Different Key, the story
1: of
4: autism. Their book is really a chronicle of a labor of love. In a Different Key is the, the, the story of all these unsung heroes who took their love and mobilized, literally. And any parent can relate to that. At
2: first child, case number one, Valentin's mom Mary, was a steely
3: advocate for her
2: son, removing him from a harsh institution and refusing to let
3: him be marginalized. She was keeping up conversation, feeding him language all the time, The boy didn't really have much language. And because of that, ultimately, language began to come to him. Oh, thank you like Uh like She
5: taught him how to drive.
2: Yes. <laughs> it's kind of breathtaking. In what way was that an example of parental love driving this whole evolution of our understanding of autism?
4: It's never giving up, it's never taking no for an answer. He was 27 years old, I like when he first learned how to drive. She was going to do everything she could in her power to give him a life.
2: And at 82, Donald, today, is still an enduring testament to his mother's love, a theme common throughout some of nine-line stories. People ask that all the time, that, oh, looking back, you know, was it worth giving up your law practice, you know, moving your house, relocating again? And 90% of the words that he has, we taught him. So how much is a word worth? How much is one word worth, every word, is priceless? The intimate access the pair received to these no accident.
4: I have a 21-year-old son, Nicky, who has autism. And when he was first diagnosed, I didn't know where to start. And as soon as I hit the ground running with him, I thought, I have to just keep figuring out what's out there. And I have to share it with the world. Like a true
3: journalist. It was a little bit hard to say, we want to do stories about autism. Stories about what? About autism. It was only 16 years ago. But really. A lot's changed in the last
4: was the only show we do it. We didn't want people to look for miracles. We wanted to show them what was real that was happening that might be able to help their family. Covering autism, an organic
2: transition for Zucker, immersed in the neurological disorder every day with her son. But Don then had a very different journalistic background. Tell me about the evolution for you, of, you know, dashing foreign correspondent, you know, out on every breaking news story, to... Basically channeling your thoughts and your
3: reporting towards one single topic. You can't do a story about a person with autism without sitting down and becoming a forming a relationship. And in the beginning, I didn't know how. So it was a it was a very big switch from action to very, very personal and intimate with somebody who I have traveled more than halfway to them to understand. What are the future chapters
2: in
4: this
3: history of
4: we have not
3: looked at adults. As a society, we more or less, not perfect, but more or less, well, these kids are kids, let's give them all the opportunities we can to help them have great adulthood. Then they turn 21, and all of that sort of goes down the drain in a lot of cases, because people need continuing help. But where are they? They're living at home with their parents, often. And for the, those 40 years after school, a person with autism has not gone anywhere, not done anything. Did
2: you have a goal, John?
3: Going to the Karen, as a member of the community, as at that time when we started out, you had a little boy have a man. i joke about that over this. It's, it's been a big.
2: What makes you emotional?
3: Her, her kid. I know that Karen's always said what she wants is when her kid now a man is out there in the world that she won't be the only one who has his back, that it'll be everybody. <laughs> And she wants this book to get people who read it to be willing to be those people to be there for her,
2: her, 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 her. So, So uh, Nightline, I'm GG Chan.
1: speakers today, officially, Karen Zucker and John Donvin. Karen Zucker is an investigative journalist and a television producer of ABC's World News and Nightline. Working alongside Peter Jennings, Charlie Gibson, and Diane Sawyer, she covered economic summits, presidential campaigns, social trends, and the Olympic Games. Emmy-nominated, she was honored for her part in ABC's coverage of 9-11. John Donovan is a correspondent for ABC News and host and moderator of the Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. During his journalism career, in addition to anchoring such broadcasts as ABC's Nightline, John served as Chief White House Correspondent and held multi-year postings around the world. He won three Emmys and the Overseas Press Club Award and performs as a live storyteller with the Group Story District. John and Karen have been covering the story of autism together for 18 years and actually began as a personal reporting journey as well as a journalistic one, as we just watched. Um, their article in 2010, in the Atlantic, Autism's First Child, was shortlisted for the National Magazine Award and appeared in the paperback anthology, Best Magazine Writing of 2011. They also produced the series, Echoes of Autism, for Nightline and ABC News, where they both still work. They also, I just learned, got nominated for the Goodreads Best Book of 2016. If you want to vote on this, you have to vote this week. Everybody, Goodreads, vote this week. (laughs) So, In a Different Key explores a history and changing perception of autism. Karen and John were able to find the very first person with an autism diagnosis, who's now in his 80s. You'll hear more about this man when they talk. Thanks to proactive moms and community support, we now educate and provide for these individuals. As Walter Isaacson writes, sweeping in scope, but with intimate personal stories, this is a deeply moving book about the history, science, and human drama of autism. It's also something larger, a fascinating exploration of a social movement that grappled with the mysteries of mind, behavior, and the relationship between parents and children. And here is Karen and John.
4: John's
5: okay
4: now,
3: <laughs> and can we tell you our stories? It's a really, it really is such a pleasure to be here. I personally have a lot of Columbia connections. Um, I was born down the block, and so was my mother. So was my mother, and so was my brother and sister. And uh, then I went to the journalism school, and both my parents are graduates of Teachers College. So I've had a lot of. I've, I, I spent big parts of my childhood, as I recall, running around the basement of this building. Because I just, I just remember big steam pipes. Was that? Did I imagine that, or was that from watching Alien too many times? Yeah. So um, it's, a, it's really a pleasure uh, to be in front of this group. And Karen, you normally ask a question when we begin uh, to learn a little bit about the audience. Well,
4: we're wondering how many people in the audience um, have a connection to autism, have a child or a family member that has autism. So a fair amount of you. And is there anyone in the audience that is on the spectrum that has autism?
3: And is there anybody who's working as a professional in the field as well? A lot of people. Okay. So almost everybody here has some familiarity and will know what we're talking about. And, and part of what we want to talk about is what was the point in going back and looking at the past. And our basic answer to that is looking at the future. It's something that took us much, much longer than we thought. The reality was that the uh, the history had never been told before. We, we thought that there would be books that we could turn to that would sort of lay it out for us, and there really uh, wasn't anything in this kind of depth, and what we signed on for was a project that was going to take two years, and it ended up taking seven. Um, and, uh, and, and I, you know, we we spent a lot of time working together, so I think you're going to notice that when you've spent that long working on a project together that you really have a tendency to finish... Finish each
4: other's sentences.
3: So, there's going to be... It's going to be a little bit of interrupting as we do that, but we're all very comfortable with it. Um, Try
4: not to get annoyed.
3: Yeah. Um,
4: Unless someone's saying something really important, and I interrupt.
3: um, Now, we worked it out. Neither of us knew how to write a book when we began, which is one of the reasons that it took us seven years. But the other part was that the story really had never been told. And um, as you saw in the film, we decided to in the sense of having a beginning to try to find out whatever what we could about the first child ever diagnosed and um, by by first child diagnosed what we refer to is the nineteen forty three article published uh... in a now defunct journal called the nervous child um, in which um, the johns hopkins child psychiatrist leo connor first described the cases that really launched the, the recognition of the concept of the diagnosis in the English-speaking world. And he, uh, he wrote about a boy, um, he actually wrote about 11 children, but he gave them, numbered them, and case one was this boy he described as Donald, no last name given, just the initial T, Donald T. And we were able to you know, it's all accessible in the medical literature. Connor wrote quite a bit about Donald over a period of about 15 or 20 years, and we were able to piece together the story of what had happened, that he came from uh, a small town in Mississippi. At one point, Connor actually mentioned the name of the town. Many, many years later, it was a town called Forrest, and that his parents were uh, quite prominent and well-to-do people in this little town, both well-educated. The father was a graduate of Yale Law School and the mother was a college graduate. And they had some wealth. And um, Donald was born in 1933 and um, caused great concern to his parents when he showed no sort of relatedness to them. Primarily, that was the main thing. But he was also echolalic, which meant that his speech was composed of repeating back things that he heard. Um, but he also had some extraordinary apparent talents for memory, for example. Um, again, it might be part of the echolalia, but once, one year before he was two years old, his mother sat down and played a set of Christmas carols, And she only played each song once, and then he ended up walking around the house singing all of the songs verbatim. Um, But he also liked to spin things. Not
4: unlike my son. I have a 22-year-old son with autism. And we found along the way when when, when we met Donald that there were a lot of similarities between my son and Donald, which is what's so fascinating about the disorder to begin with, that in the span of 83 years, 83 to 22, that you can still see how alike these two men are.
3: So we were we were able to piece quite a bit <clears throat> together about uh, about why the, why they went to um, Hopkins and how they did. They would they their pattern really was one that w- we would see repeated for decades and decades afterwards. Which would be parents would become concerned. They would start making rounds of doctors. The doctors wouldn't know what they were talking about. Um, they would usually try to tell the mother not to worry, but then ultimately um, somebody would say, "Your son has." Um, your son, usually son, your son or daughter has some sort of serious mental illness or intellectual disability, or uh, sometimes they just did use the word insanity outright. And almost always they would be recommended to give the ch- put the child away in an institution for life. And, and that's it, what everybody did. And that's what Donald's parents did, in fact. Um, for At the age of three, he was put in an institution in Mississippi. and um, But after uh, about 13 months... Um, for reasons that we can only surmise but we our guess is that they just thought they'd given up too early they pulled them out and that's when they got into hopkins and got to see connor and connor was the uh... austrian born uh... unquestionably the leading child psychiatrist of his day in fact the field wasn't very very well developed so he didn't have a lot of competition but he was very highly regarded uh... and wrote the textbook literally child psychiatry that was used for three to four decades afterwards so connor um you know, spends some time with Donald and sees him again um, the following year. The, the first meeting was in 1938. He sees him again the following year and then a few more times between then and 1945. And he doesn't really, in the beginning, know what it is he's looking at but in the end uh, in 1943 he publishes an article in which he proposes that what he's seeing is something that hasn't been described fully in the literature before. He uses the adjective autistic which he borrowed from schizophrenia. Schizophrenia had a symptom called autism, which was a social withdrawal that came and went with patients. It was not the same autism we're talking about, but it was in a sense, it was like saying fever. Um, so he said, I'm seeing autism in that sense. But he didn't use autism, he said autistic. But within two years, he had started to call it an ism. And so this was the launching of this, of this diagnosis. But Karen and I, we come from a tradition uh, we're storytellers, and we come from a tradition of journalism where we assume that the audience really isn't going to care if you don't give them somebody to care about. Um, we, we believe in data, but data doesn't tell a story. Uh, not, not in the sense that we tell a story. I'm sure that there are scientists who will say, yes, data tells a story. But, but we, mean it in a, we mean it in a sort of lay sense. Um, in
4: the sense that people outside the autism community um, and, and you all here would want to... Just put
3: a closer team up, much closer. In, in the there. sense that
4: um, people outside of the autism community would be interested because it would be great storytelling. It wouldn't just be about autism, but it would be about people's lives and yes. things that intrigue people outside of the community, which is a big part of the reason that we wrote the book.
3: So we, we had all of this about Donald's presentation to the medical establishment and how he ended up being case one. Um, but then we kind of heard through the grapevine that Donald might still be alive somewhere, and um, one of us is a great investigative reporter, and that's not me, it's this one. Um, and so Karen, Karen found Donald in 2007. Well,
4: not actually, he was busy writing and researching, but it was my job to try to track down Donald. And um, I did what any journalist would do back in 2007, before we were all using the Internet for every single thing that we did. Um, I got a phone book and I opened it to the, all the T's in Forest, Mississippi. Because as John said, we, we knew that he was from Forest, And I started calling every single T, and I thought, well, it'll take me a few weeks, but I'll get through the T's eventually, I'm going to oh, find yeah. this guy. And it was only about half a dozen calls through, I got an answering machine that I picked up. And on the message was, this person answered and said, hello, happy spring and have a wonderful fall and a terrific 2007. And I thought, oh my God, that's Donald. That's I crazy. know that's Donald, it's gotta be Donald. He just, just sounds just like Mickey, I gotta call John, I called John, we've got him, we found him. And we knew at that moment that that was absolutely Donald it was too. And it was it was him wow. and we, um, we we knew we wanted to meet him but we didn't want to just go knock on his door. Um, and so we tried to reach out with to his community and we reach out to fellow journalists and to his family and the most fascinating thing that we learned immediately when looking into meeting Donald was something very extraordinary
3: about his we, we, We knew a journalist who knew another journalist who knew a member of his family. So there was a chain from the first journalist to the second journalist to the friend of the family, to his brother, to Donald, was the the chain that, and at every stage, we called and said, we will back away right now if you say you don't want us involved.
4: Because he obviously had led a private life up until that time. And and the people that we spoke to gave us a a really insightful clue to what was going on in Forrest. Because when we said we wanted to meet him, they said, we'll introduce you to Don, but if you mess with him in any way, we will come, we will track you Yankees down, wow.
5: and we will get
4: you. Wow. And they weren't kidding. They, there was this protection and this love of this man in their community that they had watched out for, for his entire life. And it wasn't gonna stop now. And it was unlike anything we had ever seen before. And John and I, as we were working on the book and as we've been reporting ever since, have said if you could bottle what happened in Forest, Mississippi, yeah. you know you could change the world because it was it was really just well, it wasn't as simple as compassion, but compassion had a lot to do with it.
3: And so, who did we find? We saw some references to it in the video. Donald's not a good interview; he doesn't chat. That's why he wasn't interviewed. Um, you can have a conversation with him, but it's very um, very pragmatic and very brief, very terse. Um, but here's the the sort of really amazing stuff. Um, He lives on his own uh, in the house he grew up in. Uh, We learned more about the fact that his parents were well-to-do. They owned the one bank in town. Uh, His mother's family owned the one bank in town. So he has a trust fund which is a very, very, very big plus for anybody with disability and very rare obviously. But it also shows what happens when you have support. Um, He he, uh, has great health he has friends in the community, including those friends who wanted to protect him from any harm from us. He has a routine that he lives every day that he loves. He uh, he learned how to, as we said, we learned how to drive when he was 27. His mother and daughter. And he travels
4: all over the world. Once a month, he travels somewhere outside of the United States. And by himself, he gets himself to the airport. And this is someone who has autism. This is not somebody with super high functioning, what we used to call Asperger's. This is somebody who really still is autistic, and he has found a way to travel the world.
3: With, with, with patterns and with obsessions. I mean, when he travels the world, he'll only go away for six days.
4: He needs to be in church on Sunday.
3: And then he comes back, and he, he doesn't have any real interactions with people he meets along the way, except as is absolutely necessary. He, so he takes pictures of things that he's seen on the internet or in books, and then he comes back and he numbers all of the pictures and he assembles them in his books according to his numbering system. Just like he numbers people. Well, we'll get to that. No. <laughs> and, um, and so what we, what we see in this guy is somebody who's, oh, he plays golf. He became obsessed with golf. He started playing that when he was 23. Now, anybody who plays golf tends to be obsessed. So that's not, <laughs> that's not that unusual. But, but as we said in the article we wrote in 2010, in a lot of ways, this child who presented as the classic template for, autism, for the autism diagnosis, when it was a far more impairing diagnosis at one narrow end of what's today called the spectrum than it is today, that child <laughs> grew up to an adult who has what many people describe as the perfect retirement life. He's got, he's got a little money, he plays golf every day, and he travels around the world.
4: And he goes to the bank a few hours a day, basically because he loves it still.
3: Yeah, so we'll come to the bank part also. Maybe we should get to that. What we wanted to do was figure out, was there anything about his upbringing in this town, where we've already gotten this signal that they sort of closed around him? What happened over the, between the time Leo O'Connor saw him in 1938 for the first time and when we saw him in 2007?
4: Well, first first you have to tell the brick story before you get to
3: the bank. Okay, but... We, we actually wrote a book together. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and it all worked out. So we but wanted it doesn't to... doesn't we, always we'll
5: work out. <laughs> so, so we'll get off here and we'll... <laughs> um, um, and
4: I keep I, interrupting. I'm jumping you. right
3: back on my train of thought here. But anyway, my train of thought was we wanted to find out, like, how did it turn out so well for him? And so here's what we started to figure out from talking to people in the community. Now, Donald's 82, the people who were around when he was a child or dad. And the people who remember him are 82 up to 90, um, and and a little bit younger, too. Because we learned that Donald hit many, many milestones that a typical person hits. He just needed more time. Like he learned to drive when he was in his late 20s. He went to high school. He graduated from high school when he was 22 years old. Um, But he did graduate from high school. And they didn't give him a pass. He didn't have great grades but they didn't coddle him. He had to actually do the work. And then he went to college. And then he went to, co- to a junior college, and then he went to college. And it's sort of the theory that we developed is that, me, and, we, and we don't claim that this is fact. Fact with autism, you can, almost can't claim anything as fact. It's our, it's our suggestion that here's a guy who had this potential that's now been realized. He always had it in him. But here he is in a community where people are watching out for him. Everything is the same every day. Low sensory st- stimulus, because it's a quiet little town for the most part. His routines were tolerated. And we have the theory that because his parents owned the bank, that word sort of went out that you don't pick on this kid. If you ever want to get a mortgage, you don't mess with the triplet boy. And what we found when we went back there was that people who are now in their 80s and 90s, when they talked about Donald, they all said the same thing to us. He's a great guy, and do you know he's a genius?
5: Uh-huh.
3: And, we, and everybody said, you know he's a genius. And we hadn't gathered that fact about him. So that comes to the, to the numbers thing, his, his obsession with numbers.
4: And he, and he used numbers in many different ways. Um, one of them is he numbered people. And we met people who had known Donald you know, 60 years or older, and they all had numbers if they were friends with him and, you know, Janine Brown was number 452.
3: Right. What would happen, He would say, she told us the story, Janelle Brown would tell us the story, that when she was in high school one day in 1951, Donald walked up to her and said, Janelle Brown, from now on, your number is 1,044. And then he stopped talking, and then he walked away. And, and that was the end of the conversation. But and he this did
4: this with many, many, many people throughout his entire life. In fact, I'm number 549 and John's 550 because he's clearly much older.
1: No, <laughs> actually, we don't know
4: how he numbers people, but I've decided that was how that worked. But, um, but Donald numbered everyone. And we went and we talked to the people of Forest, and they all knew their numbers. And then we asked Donald can you tell us what Buddy's number? You know, he would not one right after the other, he knew every single person's number that he had given them like sixty years
3: ago. And there really was a buddy. We we didn't find a bubba. That would have been great <laughs> for our Yankees perspective. Um, Donald could also multiply numbers very quickly in his head. And he was seen all the time at the playground or in the in the a playground at school during lunch he would just be doing numbers in the air and when people would look over his shoulder what he was scribbling in a notebook he would just be doing calculations he, he could do calendar calculations where if you tell him your birth date he'll tell you what day of the week you were born right away so he had this number gift and that's the thing that really took hold among the community that w- once they decided that they were going to accept him they actually began to celebrate his gifts and that happened all of his life and, and the, the crowning story in this whole episode was the story that we call the Brick Story. And when we went down there the first time, 2007, everybody we met would say, well, you know about the Brick Story. It was legendary. It
4: was, they, we were told that they talked about it in Jackson, which was about 30 miles away from Forrest. Everybody knew the Brick Story.
3: And the story was that back in 1951, when, um, when, when um, Donald was in high school, he one day counted the bricks and the side of the school building just by looking at it for a few seconds. And everybody told us this story. And so the, the detailed version of it is that it was a, sometime in 1951, Donald would have been probably uh, at that point a sort of 19 year old sophomore. And he stepped out of the school building. And this building is, doesn't exist anymore, but we looked up photographs of it. It was a massive building, about a block long. It served the whole county. It was packed with kids. No windows along the side of it, about 40 feet high and a block long. So thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of red bricks. Donald steps out the door, surrounded by a group of boys. He say, "Donald, if you're so good with numbers, why don't you tell us how many bricks are in the side of the building?" And Donald, the story goes, looked over his shoulder for like four seconds, and then looks back again, and he throws out the number. And, everybody is just floored. All of these boys run off and tell their friends and their friends told their friends and then the decades passed and everybody told everybody until it finally reached us.
4: And we've become close friends with Donald. And so we were together one day and I, and I said to Donald, so tell me how did you do it? How did you figure out how many bricks there were? And he looked at me and he said, I didn't. I made it up. That's great. He said, well, why did you do that? And he said, I wanted the boys to like me. And it tells you so much about autism. It tells you more than, than wanting to be liked by others and being bullied when you're young. But that he knew, he, he had the insight, as, as someone with autism, to be struggling with not fitting
3: so, the, the other things we found operative in his life that, as we say, if you could bottle would be great. He had the support of the community, the community was a very, very safe place, and it was accepting. Um, he, the fact that his parents had this cloud in town and owned a bank, again, not a, a, re, a reproducible variable, but there are lessons in what works, and what we mean by that is Donald had a job in the bank when he finished college because his parents owned the bank. So they took care of him. He had a place to go every day and work. More importantly, he had a place to go and work where he was not gonna get fired for making mistakes that a person like him would make due to social challenges. He got second and third and fourth and fifth chances. And he
4: made some doozies. I mean, he people would come into the bank and he would say, hi, and he would call them by their account number. I number 435 62 and then he would shout up what their balance was you know? and that did not go over really well so that job was very short-lived but then there was another one and another one and that was that was the gift of having your parents on the bank and but what it says for community is that we have to give these guys patience and let's find the job that's the right fit not just the one that we give them
3: we do know this about uh, seven or eight of the other 11 children whom Leo Connor described in the 1943 article where Donald was case one. He had cases two through 11. Most of the rest of them spent their entire lives in institutions, and they wilted there because Connor checked back up and they, they had just gone completely, completely out of touch with the social setting that, that they were in. So is that why, did Donald do better because his parents took him home? Did he do better because of who he was? Did he do better because of his community? Did he do better because he had a job where he could make mistakes and not get fired but get second and third chances? We don't really know, but we think it's indicative. We think it's suggestive of, of things that can really work.
4: Community. It really is indicative of community. and
3: When a community embraces somebody, how they can help support them to be the best they can be. We, speaking of community, we had our second book event when the book was published in January. We scheduled our second event to be in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, Donald went to college in Jackson, Mississippi, and we called up the college and said we're doing, we have a book out that has some scenes that take place at your college, we would love to come, and they were thrilled to have us come in. They gave us a great reception and, and through a big book event for us, in a big hall, and the place was packed, but it was packed also with about 40 people from the town of Forrest, where Donald wow. grew up, who all came over to sort of, and Donald came himself that day, and it was really lovely. And right. his whole family. Yeah.
4: And as we're signing books, you know, there's a huge line. Jackson was one of our best sellers, and, um, and then we see another line, and we look over, and it's Donald. And everyone's lined up to get Donald to sign my oh, book. Because it was Donald. Wow. They had the real story there.
3: So that's the happy story in our book, the happiest story in our book. Um, it's, it's really rare to have a sort of child to geriatric description of, uh, of autism. Um, and, and Donald has become a friend of ours. He learned how to text about three years ago. Um, there, there's a group of people. He still goes to the bank almost every day for an hour or two, and there's a group of executives on the, at the bank who have been kind of looking after him. They well, watch out for him. They, they, wa- they dress him when his clothes get a little, uh, like, a little tatty or
4: smelly. I mean, they re- you know, it's, it, it's community, and it's these people who have watched out for him for a lifetime.
3: And so... Um, they wanted him to learn to have a phone because they were worried when he's traveling so much, particularly as he got older. So they gave him a phone, and then they showed him how to text, and then he became like totally into texting, which he does now. And he texts um, Karen quite often. They became, you know, quite friendly as texters. And um, you find it pretty remarkable in terms of his language skills when he's texting versus when he's talking. Yeah,
4: and and it's actually the same thing with my my son, who. You have a conversation with Donald when he came to. He visited us. He, he was in New York to see a play and, and do something a couple summers ago. And we asked him about his trip um, and how his flight was. And his flight was good. There were 362 people on it. It landed at 11:07. And that was all the information we got. But when Donald and I are texting and you ask him something, he'll give you a huge explanation. Of what's going on, and I, and I found this in my son when he was when he was when he was before he was even a teenager, that I could not have conversations with him, but if if you texted him, yeah. he 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 sounded normal. I mean, you had a full blown conversation via text, and I think that that's not uncommon actually at all in the autism community. But to see it at Donald at eighty three, yeah. you know? yeah. to see a man who hadn't used ever used a phone, and it wasn't until you know his family and the community that was supporting him said, "You know, we need to know where you are. You know, if you're a turkey, literally, you know, we need to you need to text us and tell us where you
3: So, that's the wonderful story. The book ends. We, the beginning of the book is Donald as a child, and the last chapter is Donald today. In between, a lot of bad things happened yeah. to people who had the diagnosis of autism, and our book takes the reader through those ups and downs, and there were a lot of downs and a lot of dark periods. Um, and again, we we tell that story by having found people who lived through it, or very, very detailed but not seen before accounts that they left behind to tell the, sto- the stories of people who went through it. So very, very broadly, we look at the time when people were institutionalized. We look at the time, which only ended in the 1970s, when children w- with... Um, Autism or any, frankly, any disability, had no right whatsoever to a public education. That happened in the lifetime of many of us. And one of the reasons that people often say, well, where were all the kids with autism when I was young? They were in institutions or they were at home. They weren't in school.
4: It was the law. The law said we don't have to take you. And if you're acting out or you're too weird or we're afraid of you or we're uncomfortable with you around us, we can legally send you home.
3: And, and, in, and most of the time, that's what happened. So we've, we've interviewed parents, who and, and, and a lot of the focus of the book through these years is on the parents. Parents were the people who changed the game. Parents were the ones who opened the doors of the schools, who closed the doors of the institutions, who forced researchers to try to, to figure out what was going on. They, they had no support. But the greatest battle the parents fought at the beginning of this period, and by the beginning of this period, I mean from roughly 1950 until right, roughly 1970, 75, is that the absolute 100% conviction of psychiatry about autism was that mothers caused autism by not loving their children enough. It was 100% what what you would be told, and if you went to a library, probably in, in the library here, back in 1964, you would have found um, not that much written about autism, but what was written would have been discussing the mother's role in, uh, in causing autism.
4: And everyone believed it, the medical establishment, believed it. Everybody believed it. And there was no research done early on to disprove that until one parent decided to, to fight that fight.
3: There was a guy out in San Diego named Bernard Rimland who passed away in 2006, uh, who, who at one time, and, and we're amazed at how quickly, how quickly people are forgotten, but if you go back to 1996, Bernard Rimland was the big name in autism. If you watch the movie Rain Man, who was the advisor oh. of Bernard Rimland. If you saw any interview in the newspaper, it was Bernard Rimland, and Bernard Rimland was the father of a guy uh, named uh, Mark Rimland, who's about, uh, he's born in 56, so he's he's just turned uh, 60 this year. So his son uh, was born to his wife, Gloria, back in 1956, began to uh, show behaviors that didn't make sense to him, made the round of doctors, we don't know what this is, maybe you have to institutionalize him. And then one day, um, his wife, who took a psychology course or two in college, remembered that she, there had been a textbook where she maybe saw, she came back to, I think there was a, a kid like our kid in my psychology textbook, and Bernard Rimland went out to their garage and ripped open all the boxes with their textbooks and came back in after about an hour with his thumb in the page of a book and he said, it's called autism, it's autism. And his wife said, well, what does it mean? And he said, well, what I'm reading here is bullshit because it says you caused it. And and Bernard Rimland said, there, I just knew, and there was no way that my wife, who I see with my son in such a loving way every day, caused this. At the same time, there was a woman in upstate New York named Ruth Sullivan. you want to? Um, Ruth
4: had a son named Joe, and she was also told that her, she was the cause of her son's autism. And she had all these other children, and she said... Oh, so I just gave it to Joe, but nobody else. And she didn't buy it either. And the two of them ended up finding one another through the mail, because that's what you did then. There was no internet. And through that process, they formed the first organization for families with autism.
3: And for a long time, the only one. I mean, now there are hundreds of autism organizations. But until around 1995, there was just the one that is now known as the Autism Society of America. It used to have a different name. And so these parents, they organized and, and they, they, they ultimately successfully pushed back on so many fronts to create the worldly opportunities that people who are on the spectrum have today, but their contribution is forgotten because people forget stuff and they forget how, that things used to be much more difficult. What Bernie Remlin did was he went around to every he just doubted the refrigerator it was called the refrigerator mother theory that the mothers were cold to their children. He doubted this theory, and he looked he, he wrote to every person anywhere in the world who was doing any kind of writing most people were not really doing research they were writing case histories but they were anybody who had seen a child with a diagnosis of autism and he collected the maximum number the, the total number of autism cases that then existed in the world of the medical literature which as of nineteen sixty four only amounted to about two hundred and fifty kids and he, he analyzed them and he just found that there was no case whatsoever on various grounds on on as in Ruth Sullivan's case, the impact on other siblings, the descriptions of the parents, they weren't actually particularly cold. Um, He demolished the refrigerator mother theory.
4: But mothers at that point in time, because that's what the quote unquote psychiatrists were saying, believed it. And that's what they read and that's what they were told. And with the exception of Ruth Sullivan and a few other women that we spoke to in interviewing for the book, most women thought even that it was their fault. I spoke with this um, one mother, um, Rita Tepper, who was a social worker. And so she had read the books written by Bruno Bettelheim, the man who really got the word out there that it was the mother's fault. You were the one that caused this terrible thing to happen to your child. And so Rita, who was educated, thought, okay, it's my fault. Well, maybe I can fix it, so I have to figure out how to fix it. and by the time her son was diagnosed, she was in therapy to try to figure out why she caused her child's
3: And And therapy of the mother, psychotherapy of the mother was the prescribed solution to having an autistic child.
4: So what we weren't doing is any research, what we weren't doing is any treatment for children with autism, right. because it was the mother's fault, and as long as it was the mother's fault we didn't need to do anything else.
3: But there's a really poignant moment in Rita's uh, I never met Rita that's somebody who Karen interviewed down in Florida, but I watched a recording video recording of it. It was a really powerful thing because she was going through she was, she was attending a sort of weekly wouldn't call it supports group in those days, but it was sort of group therapy for other mothers and um, and they were encouraged to try to explore their first weeks postnatally to figure out what they had done, what was the moment that they had Hurt their child, forcing this autistic response. And
4: she'd been whacking her brain. She wanted to. She wanted
3: to find. She wanted to find something that she. Had done wrong. I figured
4: it out. Then I could fix it. And I could cure him. And all of a sudden, one day, while she's in this therapy session, you know, sort of a light bulb goes off, and she thinks, you know, when my daughter was born, she was pink and round and snuggly, and I hugged her and loved her, but when her son was born. He he was really skinny and scrawny looking, and he had jaundice. And he had yellow hair sticking. Yellow hair that was sticking up, and she thought her first reaction to him was, you know, he looks like a chicken. (laughs) And one day it dawned on her, oh my God, the first time I saw Stephen, I thought he looked like a chicken. And that's what caused his autism. And she absolutely believed that. And then she'd be working with the therapist to work through that so that they could cure Stephen. And, and this is what went on.
3: And Rita Tepper is a very bright woman and, as Karen said, very well-educated. She now knows, thanks to Bernie Rimland, she now knows the theory is dead and, and ridiculed, but the time you spent with her, you said she 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 had never told anybody how ashamed she felt.
4: Yeah, it was a story she hadn't told. It was a story that, you know, she took out of her closet, you know, Decades and decades earlier, and you know it was heartbreaking because here she had this child. Because remember, children who were diagnosed with autism then were really severely autistic. There was not the spectrum that there is today. So the people who were diagnosed, the children that were diagnosed, had classic autism, and they were headbanging, banging, and they were nonverbal, and they and and the parents were really struggling to help them. And so, you know, for this family to 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 deal with all of this. The pain of revisiting it and telling the story again just sort of never goes away.
3: So there are other dark episodes, but we don't want to bring everybody down, But so we won't. Um, but the institutionalization was brutal. You were all in New York, you probably know about Willowbrook, what happened in 1970 when Geraldo Rivera went in there and discovered Incredibly abusive conditions, and became famous for doing it. Geraldo Rivera deserves a ton of credit for having done that. Um, people who were there now say that the, probably the vast majority of people in there would have an autism diagnosis today. Although in that period, the mental retardation was the diagnosis that most of them had. Um, that was a, that was an awful time. There have been people have been scammed. There's a lot of playing on people's on, on parents' desperation and fear. Stories of endless stories of
4: Treatment that doesn't work crazy cures, yeah. You know, which is part of why John and I started covering autism because when in the early days after my son was diagnosed, secretin, it was a pig hormone, and that was going to cure autism. And there were all of these things and, and some of these things may have helped some children somewhere along the way, but you know, this isn't science and these are, are things that you know we now know were just disputed by the science. But, but there is there is a silver lining that we talk about at
3: the, the end of our, our book. Yeah, what we want the book, what we're trying to do with the book is to reach people who don't feel they have a connection to autism. And, and we do it by trying to tell these personal stories and getting them to care, getting them to care about Donald, getting them to care about Rita Tepper, to know what they went through, to know that they overcame, to know that these battles were fought and won tremendously, and to remind people of how far we have come in a 70-year period from terrible to not so bad in some ways compared to the past right now. That the that the past what the, the, the success, the progress made in the past can serve as an inspiration for the future, where in the future, the, the, up, the upcoming challenges are continued acceptance um, of people who, who are different, which we've come a long way on, but especially giving support to adults on the spectrum, um, which we uh, have, have not done very well at all. So the idea is to get people who don't know anything about autism to understand that they have a stake in autism because it's, the, it's how society has treated people who are different that has largely shaped the kinds of experiences people who are different have. And in Forest, Mississippi, it was a model of acceptance, but there are other places where it's not so great. And that, so that's the story that Karen's talking about. Um, it's a scene. It's something that actually happened
4: on a bus on, in Caldwell, New Jersey. On a bus in
3: Caldwell, New Jersey, in 2000. And,
4: <laughs> not 2007 Somewhere
3: 2006 it's around that. <laughs> yeah, we, we're not going to get those 15 seconds of our life back because it doesn't really matter what hero was um, what happened was um, and we were told this story by um, an applied behavior analyst a teacher who was working with a, a young man who was a, a teenager late teenager probably 17, 18, 19 something like that who himself did not look like a child anymore But he was severely autistic. And his name is Nicholas. Um, And and Nicholas was was severely autistic in the sense that he he had no language. Um, In an earlier era, he certainly would have been institutionalized for life. And this teacher was trying to teach him how to use public transportation by giving him the tools to get out on his own. Huge, huge liberator to be able to get out on your own. And in fact,
4: on this day, the educator was sitting way, way in the back of the bus because Nicholas had kept moving forward and more and more away from his teacher and was now sitting on his own. But nobody knew that because he had a Bluetooth in his ear. Uh-huh.
3: So and so Nicholas had gone through weeks of the same route back and forth, seeing a lot of the same people on the bus back and forth. He learned how to, how to hail the bus. When the bus stops... Wait till the door open. When the doors open, get on the bus. When you get on the bus, go up the next step. When you go up the next step, put the money on. You put the money in, go to your seat. What happens if something goes wrong? Miss your stop. Whatever. He had to be taught through, in a sort of contingent way, through each of these possible outcomes and steps of the experience. And he was making a lot of progress. And then this one day, um, he's on the bus, sitting to all, intents, all appearances by himself in a front seat. And um, the bus comes to a stop, and two guys get on. And they sit down behind him bus starts moving, and Nicholas begins, begins vocalizing. He starts making some loud noises. And then he begins rocking back and forth very, very vociferously in his seat, and he begins flipping his fingers in front of his eyes. He's stimming is the term for it. Quite classic autistic behavior. And this seems to bother the two guys sitting behind him. And they lean into him and they start to harass him. And they start saying, Hey man, you know, what's your problem? Anyway, stop doing that. What's wrong with you? And then
4: all of a sudden, this other guy sitting across from them jumps up and looks at them and says, Hey, says, Hey buddies, what's wrong with you guys? Why don't you back off? He's got autism. And at that moment, the entire bus stood up behind him. Not 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 literally, but figuratively. And they became the community. The, the guys who were harassing Nicholas, everybody wanted off the bus. The person they wanted on the bus was Nicholas. And it shows what compassion
5: and community, that, that bus became a community at that and time. And partly
3: because it was the same route at the same time every day, it meant the, kind of the same people got used to Nicholas being there. And they saw him when he was with a, a shadow, essentially. They got used to him. So that, we really do think of that as a community. And a community, in the, in the words of the teacher who told us about this, this episode, he feels that these communities pop up all the time. Temporary transitional communities where at the same time every day, you, you might all hit the same deli at the same time and, and start to get to see the same person. Or you might all take the same bus, or you might all go to the same place in the park on Saturday under the shade, and you get used to each other. And the idea he's saying is, these are all communities. And
4: And we choose to embrace people who are different in those communities or not. And we have that choice. And we have the choice to be compassionate or to pull back. That's
3: what... And that's our message from the book, is that we're all on the bus. Mm
5: -hmm.
3: And we can... We can be the people who, who back up Nicholas. We can be, that, especially that guy who stands up and defends him, or we can be the bullies. My guess is also the bullies, if they'd been given an explanation and a chance, probably would have been better guys. That has to do with awareness. Um, I, I really do feel that for the most part, most people want to do the right thing, but they're scared, particularly where it's adults who are acting in ways that appear strange. But what we want to do with the book is get to the outside, to the world, to the civilians as we call them, to let them know what what the families have been through in history, how far things have come, how bad things used to be, how the changes came about because society changed, and that we are all part of the society. Um, And and I know that sounds like a total cliche, but it's like many cliches, it's totally true. How we decide to respond to people who are different has enormous impact on their experience of life, and ultimately goes to what our own humanity as well, I think we, we feel that like we'll all be better off, right? So we can take questions, I think.
5: So let's uh, open the floor to questions. What's the earliest stage of indiginal the, sources in the
4: they actually can diagnose it very, very, very early now. I mean, they can't confirm it, but they're, they're looking at babies as young as, as six months old. Um, and, and that's usually because there's a sibling that has autism, so they're on the alert, because it's gene- there's a genetic component. Perfect. Kind of awareness. We we would tell you to share our book, really, because it gives you this broad history of autism. Um, you know, Autism Speaks started to do things years ago that no one had ever done before. When my son was diagnosed, there was nothing, and this was in 1996. They now have toolkits for the first hundred days after you learn your child was diagnosed. How to take your child to get a haircut. How, you know, many many different toolkits. That teach both educators and parents how to do things, and you know I highly recommend those for both educators and family members.
3: Also, if if you're working with adults, um, and, and and we're work, working with adults at the more independent part of the spectrum, the internet can be a very very empowering thing as well, um, because they can find community, and and people like each other and have less of a sense of isolation as a result of that. The internet. It's interesting thing. Two topics keep coming up in our book. I won't go into the details now, but one of them is Nazis. They, they weave in and out of the autism story again and again and again. And another one is the Internet as a game changer for all kinds of things, uh, recognition of the condition, but the way the group's organized. The, the, whole, the whole episode of the vaccine scare that came about 15 years ago was very, very, very Internet-driven, sort of an early example of that but I think in a positive way for people who who feel isolated but can use the Internet and can communicate through the Internet, that there are, there are groups to find, there's ways just to find company and support there. Mm-hmm. I'm a documentary
1: filmmaker, so I know that you collect a lot of stories when you go to finally create this one thing, this one book. Were there any stories that got left out that you wish you could have woven into the narrative Um, or any since
3: you've published that you wish you could share, that like just one that
4: you could share with us tonight? Or two, maybe? Our our book was cut by 45%, so. So, Uh, We keep reporting on it, so we've been doing stories on PBS, and we did find some other stories that we've we've since told, but they're not in our book. We we had a whole
3: chapter planned on uh, how autism is perceived by other cultures, our, our book is very very anglo-saxon oriented um, and we
4: didn't want it to be that way but at some point we had, we had to literally throw out you know, chapters and chapters
3: but the 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 thing that we call autism and, and by the way that's a whole another topic But we're not sure that the word autism really refers to something very concrete but that the thing that we all think we're referring to when we use the word autism autism spectrum is is uh, yeah is um is filtered by other communities in dramatically different ways And I went to Israel and Palestine, um, and interviewed. uh, In that case, in Palestine, I interviewed the head of a school. And then, and my connection to autism comes through my brother-in-law, who is Israeli and who has uh, quite profound autism. He's not at all independent. And my mother-in-law was one of those early campaigners who changed the face of how the condition was um, understood in her country. And
4: co founded the first program for autism in the country.
3: But so, I, by spending some time there, um, I discovered a couple of extremes. Um, well, one, one was that in the Palestinian, stigma and shame has always been part of the autism story. But in certain cultures, it's been more powerful. And in the Palestinian community, it's still very difficult for families, she told me, to talk publicly about their children who are disabled, and they hide them and she she told me that in fact there was one family who had twins with autism who deceived the rest of the family into thinking that they were just going to a regular private school two towns away and she would the mom would drive the two kids away and do a long circuitous route to get back to the school that was specializing in autism Um, the same thing is we're just doing a piece now that's going to be on the PBS news hour that in the african-american community here there's much more, much more stigmatization of autistic disability than there, than there it's, it's similar to what was true in white communities like 40 years ago.
4: And they're, they're, they're underdiagnosed and they're misdiagnosed and those things are so horrible for children with autism because early intervention is the best thing you can do with a child with autism, so if you're misdiagnosing them or not diagnosing them at all, they're not getting what they
3: need. Yeah, the, the, the the rate of diagnosis among African-American children lags white children by 15%. The rate of diagnosis of Latino children lags white children by 50%, which is gigantic, just gigantic. And it's not because there's no autism, it's because there are no services, there's no recognition, there's no support. So, and, and, you know, often parents will think, well, what, what can I do anyway? They don't have insurance. Um, but it, also in terms of the international story, uh, Karen went to France and found that the mother-blaming Idea is very much alive there still. Uh, it's if,
4: extraordinary. I mean, there there are pockets of the country that have moved past that, but a huge percentage of the country will not give the the family any support services if they're not being psychoanalyzed.
3: And then there are religious interpretations of autism in different communities. Uh, there, it's it's no longer happening. We believe, but about 15 years ago, there was a sect in Jerusalem of, of Hasidic Jews who interpreted autism as divine intervention, divine visitation and they went so far as to hold seances where the whole community would go into an auditorium and they would put a child on the stage and they would communicate with God through the child's utterings and, and then translate you know sort of interpret what the child was saying. And but so it's still
4: happening in South Africa where um, You went there as well. Where families you know, at the most extreme end are trying to give their children bleach to...
3: Exorcisms. To
4: cleanse out their systems. And those who aren't doing that really, really believe that there is no way they can cure their child's autism unless they do these elaborate sort of prayers and rituals to get rid of the autism. And so they're just beginning to try to get treatment out there to the community. And I I traveled with an advocate into rural areas where they were just learning about any kind of um, support and education
3: for children with autism. So that all got cut. Any <laughs> wow. questions? Hiya,
4: yeah. thank you so much for talking to us so far. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about um, what kinds of policies you've been seeing throughout your research and investigations. Um, I was a linguist in college, and I actually wrote my thesis on autism, and I was looking at various schools around the were certain schools um, in Manhattan, as compared to schools in the Bronx and in Brooklyn, who refused to allow parents to speak to children in any other language but like English. And they said that, you know, this is because we don't want the child to get confused, we don't want there to be two separate We actually didn't focus on that, we really looked at the history and those kind of policy questions um, and, and those kind of stories are not things that we covered. I mean when, when my son was first diagnosed there was no, um, there was very, very little um, treatment in New York, any kind of behavioral treatment which is now the gold standard that we know for sure. I moved from the city to New Jersey because there was nothing here, there was not a program that he could go to. So your your level of research is much more sophisticated, um, and ours was more looking at the past, and you're looking at the present and the present clearly is still
5: has yeah a lot I, of
3: problems. and what you describe sounds like it doesn't make much sense, um, but we're not there to judge it but so we're not we're not jumping necessarily on the what idiots they were bandwagon, although we're tempted to <laughs> um, but but what we found throughout history autism. Whatever it is we mean by that, and I keep using that phrase because that's a big problem and it's a the theme of our book. We're not all sure that we're talking about the same thing when we have the conversation with each other. But autism is so uh, hard to pin down and to crystallize. Um we've
4: called it a spectrum now, so yeah. it's so huge. It's not even that it's hard to figure out what it is. We've now made it so broad that the, 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 the guy with a PhD who is clearly socially disabled and struggling or struggling and really having a a very difficult time in life is called the same exact thing as the person who's banging his head against the wall and has no language and needs 24-hour support. And we call that the same thing.
3: And with that, that we think, uncertainty and confusion, it's our sense that over time, even the psychiatrists who thought the mothers were causing it thought they were doing the right thing. They believed it. So maybe, maybe this education system has a good reason for that, maybe it, or maybe they think they have a good reason for it, and it's or not. Or maybe they don't. Or maybe, as, they, as mother, maybe they
4: don't. I would say sometimes they don't. But there are, there are but stories. Sometimes
3: they do. The, the, the behavioral therapy that's used today descends from a set of experiments that we write about in the book carried out in the 1960s. That, those tools were developed by giving children electric shocks, and, and that's forgotten was now. horrible. And it, it sounds horrible now. And it was horrible, of course, for the kids who went through it. And these were kids who had no language, no independence. From the point of view of the researcher who did this work, he was doing the right thing because the children who he experimented on, and he, made, he, he did not pretend it was other than experimentation. He didn't think of it as therapy. He was experimenting to see what might be therapy. So we he in our book
4: also. He hooked
3: him up to he had put them on a floor with an electric grid with no shoes on and asked them questions. If they asked the wrong question, they got a shock through their feet and they jump up in the air. And there are pictures of this in 1965 Life Magazine um, under the headline, New Research Helps Fargone Mental Cripples, was the headline. But those, from his point of view, he was benefiting those kids because he knew, and it's true, that the kids who he took from the Camarillo State Hospital outside Los Angeles, spent 24 hours a day, every day, every month of their lives, tied down in beds. One of them couldn't walk anymore because his legs had had a... wouldn't work anymore because they'd been tied down. The so yeah, other uh, uh,
4: was banging themselves in the eyes so much they, could, they were almost going blind.
3: So his point of view was, I'm going to give... I'm going to try this shock thing to see if it can teach them through, uh, through uh, aversive... Uh, um, I want to use the term, well, punishment, basically, to teach them to, to change their behaviors, especially the behaviors where they're hurting themselves. And it worked. And it worked. And in 1990, uh, in 1981, he published a book that parents around, particularly in the New Jersey, New York area, heard about this and were desperate to get this book about how to work, do this with their children. And, and They weren't
4: using shock therapy anymore. They weren't using
3: shock therapy, but they were slapping the kids across the face... And they were spraying mustard in their eyes as a, as the negative consequence of the behavior. Right, but that, wasn't, it's, that wasn't in the book. The slapping was. But
4: the mustard.
3: Mustard happened in the lab. Um, and my point in bringing this up is that, that that those basic tools have evolved tremendously after he came under enormous attack from ethicists. Um, and he, he, changed, he changed what he did. He started to say, well, how can we use positive reinforcement? How can we use praise? How can we use snacks and things like that? But
4: that initial therapy that grew and, and lost that intensive, aversive
3: treatment has become really the gold standard, and it is the treatment that... we But here's where I'm going to disagree with what, what, the point that I want to make. The point I want to make is that people do stuff throughout the history of autism where they think they're doing the right thing but they just get it wrong and that's because the autism concept, the whole thing, is so vaguely defined that we're not sure what we're talking about. So people have stuffed kids with vitamins there was a woman at uh, um, Bellevue who was giving kids two hundred milligrams of LSD twice a day for months on end as part of an experiment and she thought she was doing the right thing. She had a very loving attitude towards the kids so to get back to your question about the school, I don't think we know the answer to that, but they probably think they're doing the right thing, even though it sounds kind of crazy. Question here. Hi,
2: I'm a clinician. I'm a neurologist, uh, and I do the diagnosis of autism. Um, I know that I try to appreciate that the moment that somebody says you have autism or your child has autism is uh, life-changing. Likely, um, what are the and knowing that you've interviewed many, many people, in terms of how to deliver that news, um, to be honest, um, that this is my opinion, knowing that it is a vague diagnosis, you so there's no blood test for this.
4: Um,
2: but what are, the, what are the better ways for me to give that information? Well,
4: we don't really go into that in the book. I mean, I can talk to you as a parent who's been through that and who knows lots and lots of parents been through that and in the day of diagnosis as PDD NOS, it was pediatrician didn't decide. decide and that's what parents would say after their kid who had autism wasn't diagnosed with autism um, and I think part of your job is just horrible really um, because it, it is a devastating diagnosis and I think it's to be honest, and but honest and direct. But you don't have to be really. They're going to get it. So if you're honest and direct, you don't have to sort of smack them over the head. If you say they have autism, if you say they need treatment, you don't. And you, I, I would, I would sort of go halfway between um, being very, very blunt, and that honesty is the most important thing, but it doesn't have to be harsh, because the news in and of itself is harsh, and that's probably not helpful. Because exactly <laughs> you probably know that already, right? Oh, that's exactly how I feel every day. Because that moment of doing that is life
2: changing to them. Right. And But I'm the one delivering that news. I'm not right, the and so you
4: know what's gonna happen most of the time is they're gonna hate you. I, I know friends who really hate the doctors that diagnose their kids. Um, and it's, you have to know that it's not you. It's just, you're, you're, you're the bearer of really horrible news. Um, but it's not, it's not so horrible. I mean, having a child with autism is not so horrible. I have a beautiful, smart um, 22-year-old son who, who will need some kind of support the rest of his life, but I wouldn't trade him in for anything.
5: I agree with you who has been us with that, but the point that I want to make is that I deeply appreciate your message that's very empowering to parents to first of all question what they're given by professionals, whatever they are, and then find their own ways. Now, you mentioned that mothers have been blamed for for the children being autistic. Mothers have been blamed for other groups who are great friends. In the literature on schizophrenia, it's a schizophrenogenic mother. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and for, for crippling their
4: children. That's right. There were two adults. still closed. Not clothes,
5: no, not, illness, not, yeah. not enough closed. <laughs> and the same with gay people. It's always our fault. And, and I'm still waiting for the, uh, the traditional psychoanalytic institutions to apologize to those groups. It's very important for parents to question and to find their own resources. I really applaud you for the work you've done on this.
4: Thank
2: you. I'm just curious. I'm
5: studying bioethics and
2: policy. And one of the things that I just came back from a a conference that uh, two people talking about they have a a son that, a daughter who's autistic in her teens, and they were addressing what happens when they're going from childhood into that adulthood, into that 18, 19? But I'm curious because you're in New Jersey, I was um, introduced to a study that's been going on for the past five years and they're teaching um, kids above the age of 17 to drive because it's important to give them some kind of autonomous way to get to work, to get to school,
4: to get home. Have you guys seen anything about this? I mean, because you're in New Jersey, I'm just curious. I, I haven't, and you, not in a million years would I like my kid behind me mean, be going this way, and there a bus would go. And so, but there may be studies going for, for people who are much higher functioning, who have the potential to be independent, who, you know, who, we, we know people who have autism, who are on the spectrum, lots and lots of people who drive. I would I would argue that people with more classic autism, um, and that means sort of anyone who who can't really advocate for themselves probably can't drive or shouldn't um, because they're very easily distracted. But I don't know. I don't want to sound like I you know John and I you know we're not scientists we we're authors.
3: that's everybody heard the question it's it's the million dollar question in the conversation about autism uh, right now Mm -hmm. Um, and and we think the answer to that question is complicated by the fact it goes back to the fact that we're not all talking about the same thing when we use the word autism Um, if there's an individual who has the label right now who can uh, advocate for him or herself the argument that I like the way I am I don't want to hear what I my my distinct qualities described as being pathological I want to be celebrated I want to be recognized for the gifts I have I, I think we both say absolutely let's celebrate that and let's be people on the bus who won't pick on somebody like that but but support and and back up where the big big tension is taking place right now is that with this we think very poorly defined autism spectrum. People like that have the label, and so do people like my brother-in-law in Israel. And my brother-in-law in Israel lives in a building with bars in the windows, because if he, or at least the windows are locked. Because if he were able to get out, he would be dead within about three minutes. He would walk into traffic, or he would be taken advantage of, he would be lost. And it's not because he hasn't been given education and opportunities, it's because it's how far he can go with it. When he was younger, he was banging his head against, you know, forehead against sharp things like that, and biting into his arm down to the bone, which again is, um, in certain manifestations of what we call autism, is very typical. I know that my mother-in-law's feeling would be that if she could make that go away, those behaviors, if she could find a way to give him independence so that he could open his windows and walk out onto the street, if. If she could make that version of autism stop happening, she would go for it in a second. I think she also knows that people at the other end of the spectrum have, have a right to demand normalization, and we believe in that as well. But I'm not sure that we think that those two things are the same thing or belong under the same heading as they do now. And we're not sure that they don't. We're not dogmatic about this, but it, when we started writing the book all those years ago, um, we, th- we kind of went in assuming that when people use the word autism from one place to another and from one time to another they were all talking about the same thing and it just turned out to be dramatically not true dramatically not true and so we're not sure that the notion of the spectrum which has very some very positive aspects to it is on the whole a great idea those positive aspects are it's a doorway to service for people who need services um, and also the people who are at the higher end of the spectrum are great advocates for for, for normalization. They're great advocates. They remove stigma. You see you see people on TV shows now as heroes who say I'm on the spectrum. That's great. That makes autism, you know, f- to your question about about the heartbreak of the word, it makes the, makes the word much less heartbreaking than it used to be. But so you go ahead. I
4: I know personally that when there was an Asperger diagnosis and we were separating autism from Aspergers and you could s- in, in just by the name itself, you knew you were talking about a more independent person, someone who could advocate for themselves, that it made things easier for everyone on the spectrum. Because we, were, we knew we were talking about different things. Yeah. It may be on the same spectrum, but they weren't. They were clearly not the same thing. But at the same, in the same token, they were diagnosed with a spectrum disorder, so that people could understand that it was a social disorder. And I think it's a big loss to the community as a, as a parent. Um, I can't tell you statistically or as a journalist, because it's, it's way too personal for me um, on that note, that calling them all one thing, uh, I don't think serves the community as well as it did beforehand.
0: I guess a very important question. But, but
3: it, it, is, it is the question of the moment, actually. Yeah.
0: Two more questions? Sure. I have a question, so um, you talked about community really as one of the main themes of the book that you come back to. and You mentioned a couple situations where there was real community that formed in New Forest, Mississippi, Mm -hmm. and also on that bus. So what were the conditions that needed to be in place for community to form in those situations? Well, that's also the million dollar question, right?
3: Um, we have $2 million. Question. Right, right. That's the second one. That's my,
4: That's actually mine because I want, I need to figure that out for myself. And I think what happened on that bus is that people were no longer afraid. They got used to this person who was different. And they, but they chose, they chose to show compassion and support. And what we as a community and as a society have to decide is the person who is, is more disabled, the, the, the typical person, you, you need to go 60, 70 percent. It can't be, it's not a halfway deal for somebody who really is disabled. As, as a society, we need to go that extra step. We need to be the person who stands up in the bus. That's what we need to do. And we need to decide to do that. And, if, and, and I think that people, if they understood it more, there would be a lot more people who stood up. Uh, and that's part of why we're doing the book and why we're trying to do a film, because we, we're trying to get more people <laughs> to be aware and in, to care.
3: In Forrest, I think it was actually kind of a little top-down in the beginning. We don't know this again for certain, but the fact that his parents had this clout, and I said before, you know, don't mess with the triplicate if you want to get a mortgage. His mother had a lot of – his mother got – talked him into the local public school because she had connections there. school didn't want him. She went down and talked to the principal and said, I want my son in school. And the principal went and talked with the teacher and said, this kid's going to be in your class and you're going to make it work. And but I did
4: that too, and I didn't own a bank. So – And you what? I didn't own a
5: bank.
3: Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I know, but you're, know. Living in, you're living where you have the law on your side. and In that period, there was no law on their side. So that's why the law is top down in that sense. But it's the same, you know, we were all forced to wear, everybody's old enough remembers when we didn't wear seatbelts in cars, and then we were forced to, and now it's smart habit. Mm-hmm. Um, Unless
4: people die.
3: Yeah. So, I don't know what the top-down equivalent would be, but, um, you know, allocation of funding, for example, takes care of not having a bank. Um, and just messaging. And that's where I do think the self-advocates putting out a positive message about the word autism is a very positive thing, because it you know, if we're still not, Karen and I, are. we blame ourselves for the fact that in the 15 years that we covered autism for ABC, we never showed a person who was severely disabled. And the reason we did that was not because we didn't want their faces to be seen, it was because we wanted to do interviews. We wanted somebody who could talk about autism. Well that cut out a whole lot of people and that's a mistake that we think we made.
4: So we tried to fix that and we did a series on people who couldn't speak for themselves.
3: And the book the book is mostly about people who can't speak for themselves.
0: We, we have copies of the book um, in the back. Um, and uh, you know, I'm thinking about what lessons we can take in this audience from what you have shared with us. Several things come to mind. One is your intense curiosity about this topic that is driven by a deep, deep concern for the people affected by it. And lastly, your meditation on a topic over many, many years that has yielded insights that have uh, really that, that have been gifts to our, our community and, and, and the readers and the communities that are affected by, by autism. So I want to thank you both, Karen Zucker and
5: John Donovan. Again.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.